Hey everybody, welcome into the Potato Cast, America's number one healthcare podcast named after a cat. My name is Mike Hess, I'm a respiratory therapist by training. I am a public health advocate by um, uh, avocation, uh, particularly in the realms of chronic lung conditions like asthma, emphysema, COPD, chronic bronchitis, all those kind of fun things that affect your breathing. Uh, my goal with the Potato Cast here, and uh, by the way, welcome into the very first episode of the program. Uh, I want to try to bring in some uh, clarity to a lot of the complex health issues that I have discovered um, through my journey in respiratory care, uh, going from uh, the acute care, the inpatient world, uh, into primary care and uh, into the longer-term management of these conditions. Uh, it's really been an eye-opening journey. Um, I've learned a lot around, along the way about how complex healthcare truly is. And uh, I want to share that with uh, as many people as I can because as we get into the discussions, uh, particularly during an election year, about whether we should have things like Medicare for all or, or, you know, or is that evil socialism or is it uh, should we just turn everything over to the private sector and have unfettered competition, we need to start understanding some of the nuances of these things a little bit better. For uh, Medicare uh, for all is a great example, and we'll get into that in a later show. Um, there are different kinds of Medicare. Which one should we have? You know, if we're talking about Medicare for all, should we have a Medicaid for all? Is that a more accurate analogy? Um, so a lot of these things we're going to be getting into uh, in future episodes. Today, uh, for our premiere, I want to get into something that is very near and dear to my heart personally uh, because we see it happen all the time um, dealing with people um, in my practice. And uh, this is probably something that you or someone you know have had to deal with, particularly if you have any kind of chronic condition, uh, whether it's a, a lung thing, whether it's uh, diabetes or another uh, metabolic or endocrine thing, uh, whether it's a, a less common condition, less common disease, um, we're talking about the idea of utilization review. Um, this is a, a process by which a lot of insurers um, try to contain their costs, quite frankly, and uh, set particular regulations about um, access to procedures and access to medications, which is where I kind of come in. This, the, my uh, focal point is dealing with these on a regular basis. Um, prior authorization is somewhat, um, I hesitate to call it new, but it's it's uh, getting more and more widespread. It used to be one of those things that was on uh, maybe what we might call a lower tier kind of insurance for a while, but uh, as um, insurers and other groups have uh, seen the light, so to speak, and uh, seen what kind of uh, economic impact they can have, uh, they've gotten far more widespread. And um, to me, that's an issue, but uh, we'll see. Uh, the biggest issue is lack of accountability, in my opinion, and that happens when uh, people don't understand the issue. So after hearing today's talk, maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you won't. I hope that you'll uh, make up your own mind. Um, just like I would uh, convince anybody to not necessarily get their information from one source. But uh, we're going to jump right into this whole idea of a prior authorization. Like I said, uh, once upon a time, it was one of those things that uh, was relatively um, um, was less common. Um, but as, uh, um, as people have seen the, the benefit to it, they have certainly expanded it. But it's still probably not something you think about a lot. Um, the whole idea of this process is to contain costs and to um, also act as kind of a backstop to a lot of clinical decision making, for better or for worse. And uh, we're going to talk about one of the for worse elements of this um, right off the bat. We're going to talk about this woman uh, by the name of Carrie Ann Lucas. Um, 
there was an uh, she uh, she died she passed away about a year ago um, she was quite an interesting woman um, I became aware of her relatively late uh, actually uh, right about the time that she uh, she passed away uh, but a lot of her story is very similar to a lot of the stories that I see in my practice so uh, for starters, she was, uh, like I said, she was pretty impressive, a uh, pretty impressive person. She started out being a, a teacher uh, and then decided that her true calling was to uh, be a, a pastor, be a minister. So she went back to school, uh, back to school on her own, and um, got herself a master's degree in divinity and wanted to become a pastor. Um, she started dealing with some health problems around that issue. Turns out she actually had a relatively rare form of uh, muscular dystrophy. Um, and after becoming a pastor, she also decided that she wanted to adopt a child who had some disabilities. Um, and she found herself facing a significant amount of discrimination because as a person with disabilities, um, that's often considered to be a less sound decision for adoption. Um, so based on that experience, she ended up uh, going back to school again and becoming a lawyer. And uh, she became a lawyer to advocate for herself and for others in her similar situation and founded a, a group, a nonprofit called Disabled Parents' Rights uh, that does a lot of advocacy and uh, representation for uh, people going through her situation. Um, after, you know, she adopted several other children, um, her condition continued to worsen. Um, she ended up uh, requiring a, a power wheelchair because, um, you know, again, with, with uh, any kind of muscular dystrophy, you often have some uh, uh, dysfunction with your muscles, uh, uh, kind of by definition. Um, ended up even going so far as to require uh, a tracheotomy and uh, to go on a mechanical ventilator to, to get through her day. She was having trouble breathing on her own. Still fighting for all these rights, still uh, being an advocate and participating in sit-ins, in, in uh, senatorial offices and all that sort of thing. But... Um, unfortunately, uh, as her condition continued to worsen, as she had all these other uh, what we call comor comorbid conditions, these other, other conditions going on alongside her uh, muscular dystrophy, she ended up getting a, a lung infection, uh, which required a particular kind of inhaled antibiotic. Unfortunately, her insurer, which uh, for now I will uh, leave nameless because uh, they did not have a chance to reply in this particular article that, uh, that I was reading, um, and I have not been able to find any other reply from them after the fact. Um, opted that, or they figured that this uh, this this medication was too expensive. It was going to cost, uh, I guess, two thousand dollars. I'm assuming per month uh, to cover. And so they wanted her to try other stuff first, which, on the face of it, is a somewhat reasonable request, I guess, in certain cases. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of trying to go with the less impactful, the, the less uh, less costly solution first. There's certainly, in theory, nothing wrong with that until you have decisions being made by somebody who lacks the proper experience to make those decisions. And I'll certainly get into that as we uh, get through some of these other stories here. But in any event, um, so Carrie uh, had this uh, arguably inferior medication and ended up uh, having a... Um, adverse reaction to it. She had some trouble uh, dealing with it and uh, got sick, sicker, ended up going in and out of the ICU a couple different times, lost the ability uh, the ability to speak, um, 
incurring massive costs in intensive care unit call, uh, care, in ambulance care, all of these things going on uh, to save a relative handful of dollars. And then after dealing with this for about a month, six weeks, uh, she ended up dying from it. Dying from this decision that was made not by her clinician, not as a result of any deficiency in her care, but because an, a particular insurance company wanted to save some money. Now, that may, on the face of it, sound like a pretty extreme case, and there's certainly an argument to be made there, too. Oh, this guy's just showing up out of nowhere and cherry-picking cases. Well, I'm also here to tell you that I have seen it personally. Um, I have had a patient in my care who uh, we all knew, her, her pulmonologist, her primary care provider, uh, myself as a respiratory therapist. We all knew that she could not use a particular kind of inhaler. Um, she had been very well stabilized on a meter dose inhaler, which is uh, the liquid mist kind of inhaler that is most commonly associated with the word inhaler. But her insurance company felt that uh, they were, they were, it was more cost effective to go on this dry powder inhaler, even though this patient lacked enough inspiratory force to get the powder out of the device. Uh, and she had previously had a bad reaction to a powder, made her cough, made her gag, uh, made her throw up. Uh, despite all of that, despite chart notes to that effect, despite uh, assertions and, and um, filling out forms and doing appeals and all that stuff, repeatedly, her insurance company refused to pay for the medication that had kept this person stable. And unfortunately, because uh, similarly with her decline in respiratory function, she ended up um, going into a bad spell and ended up passing out, um, stopped breathing. Uh, apparently her heart stopped for a little bit. They had to call uh, um, um, paramedics out there. Uh, got her back, uh, fortunately, but now she's spent time in intensive care. And now she's in our rehabilitation facility, skilled nursing facilities, uh, trying to get her back, even approaching her previous level of function. Now, is that 100% attributable to bad inhaler? Not necessarily, but I am confident that that is part of it. And so what we have to do is ask ourselves how we got to this point. How did we allow um, these decisions to be made by um, these outside sources? And, you know, uh, do we want to blame insurance companies? Do we want to blame... Um, big pharma, as they call it. Do we, who do we who do we want to put the blame on? You know, all these companies are are contributing to various costs, but one of the companies, one of the the sectors that um, isn't really talked about very much. It, it's popped up a little bit in the last couple of years as there's been some attention drawn to it. But um, the uh, quote unquote common folk, I guess, uh, people like you and me, um, we don't really think about these things too much. They're called pharmacy benefit managers. And like many, um, like many issues in our modern world, they started off with very good intentions. These, uh, these are groups that started off back in uh, actually uh, the late, uh, I believe it was the late 1960s, uh, as a way for insurance companies to kind of pool their assets, uh, pool their resources. And uh, you know, as we all know, buying in, in bulk um, can be beneficial. You know, if you have your, your uh, warehouse club membership, uh, to the, the warehouse of your choice, you know that oftentimes you get a better deal when you buy stuff in bulk. And so uh, a lot of the insurance companies came together to create kind of this trade group, this idea of, well, if, if we're all working together, we can all save some money. And so we'll create this, this benefit manager and we'll have them run our list of medications. We'll have them, um, as, uh, as the Commonwealth Fund puts it, 
we would have them negotiate larger rebates for manufacturers, um, which ostensibly uh, lower drug prices and decreased uh, the growth of drug spending over the past few, uh, over the years, over the decades. Um, you know, again, very good intentions. Then we got into um, the 1980s. You know, we started seeing this growth. Then we got into the 80s, and um, the drug companies realized, well, maybe we should get in on some of this action. Maybe we should start being, uh, maybe we should have a stake in some of the people who are deciding what medications um, are the best ones to be dispensed. Now, to me, and probably to you, there is a fairly significant conflict of interest there. If the drug company, if any drug company, is making the decision about what drug um, an insurance company should provide, that seems like there's a little bit of room for bias there. You know, maybe my diabetes drug is better than your diabetes drug kind of thing, or inhalers, that sort of thing. So the Federal Trade Commission said, hey, that's not such a good idea, and required all of the drug companies to divest themselves from the pharmacy benefit managers. And so again, we kind of had a, a phase where things were, were pretty chill again. And then the insurance companies started getting into it and said, well, maybe we should be making those decisions again. Maybe we should be um, having another layer of control. Maybe it's not just about saving money. Maybe we can um, get into some of that. And it's not even so much the, the insurance company. That I, I should correct myself. It's the pharmacies. It's maybe if we, if the pharmacies had a bigger say in what the insurance companies can provide, then again, we're creating these uh, cost synergies and all the other buzzwords that you might you might find out there. And then they would also have more leverage when they're negotiating with a lot of these insurance companies to try and uh, um, negotiate favorable contracts and things like that. Now again, there's arguably a conflict of interest there. Um, the whole idea of the pharmacy benefit manager is to save money, right? to make things efficient, to uh, make things operate efficiently, make sure that there's this objective uh, middleman, and I say that not pejoratively, but there's an objective middleman, um, to make sure that everybody is on the straight and narrow. Not, you know, nobody, your, your um, provider isn't influenced by uh, fancy dinners or vacations or pens or whatever, whatever it is. Um, the pharmacy isn't being, uh, kind of like having a referee. But... There is, again, kind of a conflict of interest there, but this time the uh, Federal Trade Commission has opted to not intervene with that, and so we see ourselves in a situation now where um, massive corporate pharmacies are seeing, are having a huge amount of control over um, the cost of medications, what medications are on formularies, what medications um, are available to patients, and so on and so forth. Um, where this has led us all is uh, currently, according to the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, um, the largest pharmacy benefit managers actually now have a higher revenue than the uh, largest pharmaceutical managers as of 2016. And that actually kind of makes sense if you look at some of the retail statistics that are out there in 2019. Um, the pharmaceutical market in the United States, based on a couple of different research uh, uh, articles, was approximately $370 billion, which is a fairly large sum of money, I think most would agree. 
the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation uh, found that only about 5% of prescriptions out there are cash pay. You know, only about 5% of the prescriptions written out there are actually um, old school, no copay, just hand over your $20 bill and you get your, your drug. So roughly 95% of $370 billion is in one way or another passing through a pharmacy benefit manager. The vast majority of insurance companies contract with one of them. Um, and the pharmacy benefit managers themselves are able to contract with pharmacies and say, if you want to participate, these are the rates you're going to charge. So this is not small potatoes anymore. And, you know, again, on the same, in the same uh, aspect, there isn't a lot of competition between them. Um, there are probably about a dozen of these, uh, these manufacturers out there these uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Um, but as in many industries, there are a couple that are the big fish, so to speak. The top three uh, pharmacy benefit managers cover just about three quarters of the market. And if you extend it out to the top six, that's 90% of the market. So the vast majority of these decisions are being made by, in, in all likelihood, they're being made by one of three companies. And again, that's been problematic for a couple of reasons. And because one of the things that these companies are doing is this whole idea, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is prior authorization. Now, what is prior authorization? Well, again, the idea is fairly sound. Again, kind of a good intentions kind of thing. Um, because there are constantly new medications coming on the market, new devices coming on the market, new procedures coming on uh, into, into, into care, um, but not always the matching evidence for these things, it's probably a good idea to have some kind of, again, unbiased third party to, to say, well, this very expensive brand new drug maybe does not have the kind of benefit that is tried and true. So maybe you should try one of these other drugs first. If there's a compelling reason, sure. That, so we have this whole idea of prior authorization where in certain cases, um, you may have to ask if you can prescribe a certain drug or um, you have to justify your, your rationale, which again, I'm an evidence-based guy. I like to see the evidence. So in theory, this is a perfectly reasonable request. However, Again, because of the money that's involved here, we're seeing these, these requests, these prior authorization demands, go way beyond what they were originally um, intended to do. We're seeing even medications that are very common, very prevalent, they've been on the market for a long time, even those things are being required to do prior authorization. Uh, even medications that... I believe the stat is about two-thirds of the time the prior authorization is being improved, they're still requiring a prior authorization. And that's where the system starts to fall apart. Uh, in 2018, uh, as they do every couple of years, again, the, the American Medical Association uh, did a survey of a lot of their, their clinical groups. Um, and they wanted to know what was going on with prior authorization. Because, again, this has been a growing issue over the last few years. Uh, and what they're finding is 
more and more are care delays and uh, adverse effects related to these prior authorizations. So uh, one of the questions they asked was, um, for those patients whose treatment requires prior authorization, how often does this process delay access to necessary care? Not optional stuff, not um, elective procedures, necessary care. And 36% um, of the physicians who responded said it often does. 44% uh, said that it sometimes does. And uh, sadly enough, 11%, 1 in 10, said that every time that somebody requires a PA, um, it delays access to necessary care. So we're talking about uh, over 90% of the physicians out there saying that there is an access problem, not to elective stuff, not to optional stuff, but to things that my patient needs desperately. There's a delay. And we know in virtually every kind of condition there is out there, to one degree or another, time is tissue. And so the longer you delay, the more likely you are to have an adverse effect, the more likely you are to require additional, more or more intensive, um, whether it's intensive care unit or not, more aggressive care. And unfortunately, we're seeing these wait times are pretty significant too. Um, 20% say that there, it's a one business day delay, 19% say it's a two business day delay, and another 19% say it's three to five business days. Altogether, 65% um, of these physicians that were studied said that they're waiting at least one business day, and one in four said that they have to wait at least three business days, again, to make a fairly easy decision. And I can vouch for this. Again, I do this stuff a lot. Um, when we ask patient, you know, when we ask a, uh, an insurance coverage or a provider through their PBM, we know this patient doesn't have sufficient inspiratory flow. We know this, this inhaler isn't going to work. We know that they have tried this historically and it doesn't work. Can we please prescribe something that we know will work, or at least we know won't overtly fail them like this other medication? And it's still taking one day, two day, three days, and you throw a weekend in there. You know, maybe some, some request gets done on a Wednesday. Somebody might not find out until the following Monday, almost a week later, whether they can actually have this inhaler. And now, again, not to diminish any condition or anything like that, but if you have something like um, gout, I used to, I, I've had gout. I've had gout flares and things like that. I can probably get by in three to five days. But if you have a condition where you can't breathe, it's going to be really hard to get through those days without increased anxiety, increased breathlessness, increased issues, and then ended up ending up going to the ER. So the, again, the question becomes, what are we actually saving? What kind of money are we actually saving? Because if we're preventing people from getting their necessary care and they're going to a higher level of care, more expensive level of care, what good is that doing anybody? Um, not only are there delays, but uh, we're seeing that 75% of the physicians that are out there say that on at least sometimes um, treatment gets abandoned because the prior authorization process is simply too cumbersome. Um, the question was, how often do issues related to the PA process lead to patients abandoning the recommended course of treatment? So you, you, know, you have somebody come into your care, um, they have an issue, you, in your clinical judgment, decide on a, a, on a, on a therapy plan for them, 
the person says, yes, absolutely, that sounds good. And then because of, again, third-party paperwork from people who don't know you, who don't know the patient, who don't know the situation, who often don't even know the condition for which they're making decisions, delay care and then eventually make the, pro the, the process so cumbersome that they just the patient just gives up. 91% uh, have indicated that there's 91% uh, of these patients have indicated that there has been uh, some kind of negative clinical impact on care because of prior authorizations. And perhaps most disturbingly, the average physician office now spends roughly 14.9 hours each week completing prior authorizations. Now, that doesn't necessarily sound like a big deal, but remember, that's two work days out of the week almost just for doing this paperwork for this one thing. And that's not even setting aside all the other paperwork that is required in the modern office, which is a whole other topic of conversation with meaningful use and, and electronic medical records and everything else. Just for this one task, this is two work days in your average office. If you go into a specialty clinic, whether it's, you know, again, um, diabetes or metabolic endocrine, pulmonary, things like that where more, where more medications require prior authorization, the burden is even heavier. Uh, on average, practices complete 31 prior authorizations per week per, per physician. This is a massive burden, and according to um, the physician studied, 88% say that it has at least increased somewhat, and 50% say the burden has increased significantly over the last five years. You know, again, as this has become more of an obvious money-saving tool for a lot of these companies, it has been a very significant time issue. And I can tell you, I can give you two great examples of the time burden and the, the bizarre requirements for um, some of these issues. So... As I said, I'm a respiratory therapist. Um, unfortunately, that also means that um, I am not considered a peer to physicians and pharmacists. Um, I have a master's degree in public health. Um, I have lectured across the country on inhaler device selection, inhaler technique. I, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a lot of years. And I say that not to, uh, to boost my resume, but to give you the, the context that I, I've been around the block a time or two. And, uh, but when I call the insurance company to do this clinical discussion, I cannot make a clinical case on behalf of our patients in our clinic. It has to be a physician or a pharmacist, but we don't always have a pharmacist on duty in our, in our, um, in our practice. And again, that is somebody who has gone through a lot more training than I have. You know, uh, four years of medical school, three to four years of residency, fellowship training, all that sort of thing. Uh, to have them sit on a phone, be on hold, and exp uh, justify themselves why they made this clinical decision. Interestingly enough, what is an acceptable solution is for me to put the insurance company on speakerphone, pull in one of our, our physicians. Um, I work in an academic institution, so we have residents. So I pull in the, the resident that I'm working with, and I can... Over speakerphone, mind you, I can say what needs to be said, and it doesn't count. But as soon as the resident says those exact same words, 
that is a peer-to-peer -peer consult. So we either have somebody who I write down the script for, who doesn't know the patient, who doesn't know the case sometimes, that is a more valid explanation to the insurance company than me who has dealt with this stuff day in and day out for years and years and years. I've also had um, pharmacist, uh, alleged pharmacists. I have a lot of pharmacist friends and I greatly respect the pharmacy profession. So I always put this in air quotes because it's really difficult to believe, uh, for me to believe that this person was a real pharmacist. Uh, but uh, if you, if for, for quick review, there are three main types of respiratory drugs. There are two different kinds of what we call bronchodilators uh, that help the muscles around the airway relax. And then there's also these things called inhaled corticosteroids that um, bring down inflammation in the lungs. Um, three different drug classes. So we had uh, another patient who we were trying to put on uh, an inhaler that had uh, two of the three drug classes, not on formulary. So calling to do this clinical consult with this pharmacist, and they suggested this other monotherapy, this one drug inhaler, of the other class. Not in addition to the drug, the two drugs, but instead of. I said, um, that's great, but that's not what we're looking for right now. That, that drug doesn't have an indication for what we're trying to accomplish. This was a, um, a drug that we're trying to get into asthma, and this was a drug class that you know, not only was a different drug class, but doesn't ha did, this particular medication didn't have an FDA approval for the particular setting that we we're trying to use it for. And this person on the other end of the phone said, well, all these drugs work the same. They all have the same FDA approval for asthma COPD which first of all is not true. It was simply the classification that they, that the company put these drugs, these drugs in. It wasn't based on their chemical class, wasn't based on their composition. It was just their, their type of, um, you know, you use it for this condition, these two conditions together. So again, you have somebody who has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Objectively, no idea what they're talking about. I'm not even, this person may have been a perfectly nice in this case, it was a man, a perfectly nice fellow. I don't know. I don't know them at all. I'm not trying to to devastate them. But if you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't be making these decisions. So you have this massive time constraint. You have this this massive time uh, effect on practices. You have the, this uh, these onerous guidelines for prior authorizations, and you have some corruption in how these drugs are paid for. Uh, this was the study the story that was actually on PBS a couple years back, 2018. Um, this woman um, had uh, what we call a mini stroke or a transient ischemic attack uh, while she was on vacation. She came home, went to her uh, her um, I don't know if she went to her PCP or her uh, neurologist or whoever she went to, uh, put her on a blood pressure medication, a generic over not over the counter but a generic freely available on the market for years because it's generic uh, medication. Um, tried to pay for it through her, her managed Medicare plan, her uh, Medicare Advantage plan. Um, ordered it through a pharmacy benefit manager um, with a mail order pharmacy. So again, one of those kind of baked in um, conflict of interest things. A 90-day supply was $285, which seemed like a lot because it is, especially for a generic drug. But okay, she needed it, so we're going to take it. So... Um, about a month later, and again, this was a 90-day supply. So even if we break it down, 90-day um, supply is usually two months worth copay. So call it $140 a month. Um, so about a month later, this person uh, was going to go on vacation. 
uh, wasn't going to be back in time for their 90-day fill, so wanted to get a, a supply to take with them. But because it was before 90 days, and there's a quantity limit to prevent stocking up because you're going to quote-unquote abuse something like your um, blood pressure drug, I guess, wouldn't they wouldn't allow the fill. So this person asked the pharmacist, well, if I pay cash for it, what is the cost? And told it turns out the cash price was 40 bucks for a one-month supply. So you've got $40 versus um, likely $140. Possibly, if this was an unusual case, um, call it $70. But either way, the cash price is going to be less than the copay uh, for insurance. So what's the point of having insurance? And it's not all that unusual. Um, according, you know, also in this article, according to the uh, study that was done at the University of South California, Southern California, USC, about 25% of the time the cash price is lower than most of the copays. Uh, USC analyzed uh, almost 10 million prescriptions during the first half of 2013. So this was a relatively old data, but it takes a while to put these studies together. Uh, compared the copay amount to what the pharmacy was reimbursed to the medication and found that in cases where the copay was higher, um, the overpayments averaged $7.69 for a total of $135 million that year, just in these pharmacy, in over these uh, 9 million prescriptions. So we're looking at nationwide probably a lot more than that. So what happens is, and again, this isn't necessarily cheating the system I, you know honestly I, I think this practice is unfair but if it's within the rules then it's hard to fault a particular company for playing within the rules right um, they're trying to they're responsible to stockholders they're responsible to uh, whoever you know they need their job is to make their greatest possible profit by with playing within the rules so if these are the rules that's the rules that unfortunately gives us a system of very perverse incentive sometimes. You know, these pharmacy benefit managers often get rebates from the big pharma companies um, to have their drugs on a particular formula. That's why we have these tiers in the formulary where something is preferred or a preferred generic or a preferred brand name or non-preferred. Um, the better the, the rebate, the more preferred a medication might be. Unfortunately, these prescriptions, or these rebates, excuse me, are generally a percentage rather than a fixed dollar cost. So the more expensive a drug is, the bigger the rebate. So let's say you have a 25% rebate on a particular drug and the PBM goes to the pharma company and says, well, we need more money. The pharma company doesn't really want to lose more money. So they end up just raising the cost of the drug so that the rebate is more and that the pharma company is still making a profit because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are actually manufacturing the product. I mean, the fairness of drug pricing by pharma companies is a whole other conversation, but at least they're like producing something, right? These PBMs are basically just kind of at this point occupying money, taking money, occupying space. Um, so again, that, that's kind of a perverse incentive. And so there's also this idea of um, what they call the, uh, um, uh, what's it called? The spread. Um, where the health plan will pay pharmacy benefit managers a certain amount of money for the fees, for the drug itself, the acquisition costs, dispensing fees that go on to the pharmacist, all that sort of thing. Then the PBM contracts with the pharmacy um, and sets the retail costs because then that sets the copay and all that sort of thing. 
And then the difference between what the health plan is paying the, the PBM and what the PBM is charging the, pharma charging the pharmacy, that's called the spread. PBM gets to keep that. So again, it's kind of in their best interest to keep drug costs as high as they can because then that's another way they can get some of these, these uh, high copays, these over cash price copays, and a lot of those things going on. Um, you know, again, and this is widespread. This happened. This particular case happened in California. Um, there's another case in the in this uh, PBS article about um, generic drug metformin that has been around forever. That um, the acquisition cost to the pharmacist was a dollar sixty-one. Um, they talked to the pharmacist and they said yeah, it'd probably sell for about four bucks. That's actually fairly common here in Michigan. We had a lot of prescriptions, including metformin, that a couple of our uh, regional chain pharmacies were selling for about four bucks. Uh, but the uh, when it went through a pharmacy benefit manager, they were required to charge um, a ten dollar and eighty four cent copay. That doesn't go to the pharmacist. Doesn't even go to the insurance company. It goes to the PBM. So you can see why there's kind of, you know, again, a, an almost a reverse incentive to keep drug prices high for these groups. And because they've flown under the radar for a while, and because a lot of these things are very opaque because they're considered trade secrets, it's difficult to get actual pricing out of it. And everybody's kind of pitting themselves against each other. Um, in this case, the, the drug company was, or the insurance company was Anthem. Uh, Blue Cross Company and uh, the uh, pharmacy benefit manager is called Express Scripts. Um, according to um, according to Express Scripts, Anthem has its own. Uh, this is a quote from the article. Anthem has its own pharmacy and therapeutics committee that evaluates placement of drugs in the formulary based on their own clinical and cost review, thus setting their own formulary and pricing. So and, uh, Express Scripts' stance is that. Um, they're just making recommendations. They're just saying, this is what you should do to Anthem. Anthem says that they currently contract with Express Scripts for pharmacy benefit manager services, and under that agreement, Express Scripts controls and provides the drug pricing. So again, you've got both of these companies, these huge corporations, going against each other. Um, neither one of them is admitting that they're in the wrong. They're both trying to pass the buck on the others. We see this again. I've had extensive experience with a lot of these groups in, in Michigan. Um, this, we have this idea of what we call managed Medicaid, where the state contracts with Blue Cross Blue Shield and a company called Meridian. Uh, actually, I think they just changed their name to WellCare. Um, or Aetna or United Healthcare, who actually provides the benefits for our Medicaid population. Those groups all also set their own, well, they used to set their own formularies. They're all um, private insurances. They used to set their own formularies, and the state, again, good intentions, said, well, we want to provide a common experience for all of our, uh, all of our Medicaid population. So we're going to have this thing called the common formulary, where you this is the minimum drug list. Each company, if you want to compete, you can offer more drugs, you can offer different drugs. You have to offer at least this base amount. And that was great. That was a great idea for a while. But unfortunately, the committee that was in charge of setting this common formulary was only ever made up of representatives from these drug companies and their, their PBMs, their pharmacy benefit managers. Again, maybe a little bit of a conflict of interest, which under normal circumstances, well, maybe 
you know, you have your public comment period. You have this, this uh, you have transparency. You have, as, as a state program, you should have some accountability to it. But because, again, they were kind of playing the advice card that these the, this committee was simply advising the Department of Health and Human Services as to what to put on the formulary, these were not open to these meetings were not open to the public. These meetings were not available. They weren't advertised. They, nobody knew where they were, when they were. Um, they were literally dark room meetings that nobody had any insight on. You could provide an email comment if you knew where to look on the uh, Michigan State uh, Health and Human Services webpage. Um, you could provide commentary once a year if you knew where to find the, the stakeholder meeting. But otherwise, these were backroom deals that were made by the insurance companies. And sure enough, over the three years since the introduction of the common formulary, the offerings have winnowed down to the point where we got to the situation I described before, where you've got the biggest rebate slash quote-unquote cheapest drug. Um, whether it's most appropriate, who cares? Whether it's what the physician wants, who cares? Whether it's the thing that is going to get somebody to actually take their medication and not stop taking it because it tastes bad or it doesn't seem to do any good, who cares? It's cheap for the PBM, so that's where we're going to go with it. So the flip side to a lot of this, and again, you know, I'm trying to be somewhat, um, at least try to give a, a balanced perspective. So I went to... Um, the website for the uh, for PCMA, which is the group that um, the basically the trade group for these pharmacy benefit managers, um, and I found a couple of you know very nice, very happy um, press releases on, on their on their website. Um, first off, was one. Uh, this is a press release from. Um, August 14, 2019, that the Government Accountability Office report shows pharmacy benefit managers working to reduce Medicare Part D costs. Um, and the big takeaway from this is uh, the GAO's report confirms that uh, almost all, 99.6% of prescription drug rebates negotiated by these PBMs with drug manufacturers participating in Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit, are passed through to the drug sponsors, um, the insurance companies, and are used to lower costs for Medicare beneficiaries. Okay, that's fine. Maybe we are passing those rebates through. But the issue, particularly with inhaled medications, is just because you're getting that rebate through still doesn't mean that that's the appropriate medication for the patient. Doesn't mean that that is the appropriate thing that needs to be used. And so again, yeah, that, that is a fantastic, albeit very narrow, um, piece of good news. Is it saving money? Is it saving money in the long run? That's very difficult to say when you're not using, necessarily using the right tool for the right job. Um, another press release, this one is a little bit older, not a lot of action on the uh, PCMA website, I guess, in, in terms of press releases. Um, an analysis uh, from a consulting company called Visante quantifies how pharmacy benefit managers generate $6 in savings for each $1 spent on their service. Uh, they discuss, uh, again, this is back in 2016, um, that they reduce prescription drug costs, that uh, PBMs save payers and patients 40 to 50% on their drug costs uh, compared to what they would have spent without PBMs. 
uh, supposedly an average of $941 a year. I mean, this all sounds fantastic. Uh, PBMs account for 4% of the net cost of brand name prescriptions, while manufacturers account for 88%. Um, I'm not sure that's the most compelling argument, since it seems like the cost of a prescription should go to the manufacturer. When I buy a toaster, I expect most of the money to go to the maker of the toaster. I mean, I know I need to pay for um, the place that I bought it from. I need, you know, they have overhead, they have personnel costs, they have rent, they have utilities, they have, you know, all that sort of thing. I know I need to pay for the shipping from the manufacturer to the uh, distributor and then to the retail place. I know that there are some costs in that, but, um, I don't know that that's necessarily something I would bullet point if I was if I was making this argument. Um, over the next 10 years, uh, PBMs will prevent 1 billion medication errors. Um, how they account for that, I'm not sure, especially with the advent of the electronic, uh, electronic medical record. Um, because I know as soon as we put any kind of medication in there that has a potential medication error... Uh, we get red flags there. I would have to imagine that it's all computerized at the at the pharmacy point of sale also, so I'm not quite sure how they get that figure, but that is what they present. Um, and they state that they improve drug therapy in patient adherence in diabetes patients, helping to prevent some uh, 480,000 heart failures, 230,000 incidents of kidney disease, 180,000 strokes, and 8,000 amputations annually. Uh, and again, I'm not sure where they, they come to that conclusion. And the reason I'm not sure about all this stuff is if you dig down, they, they provide a link to the, uh, the uh, complete findings, as they call it. But if you look at the complete findings, you find that one of those complete findings is that a lot of these are estimates and there's not supporting data. In healthcare, we're usually used to seeing peer-reviewed data. You know, if you're making a conclusion, you should have some kind of um, way to back up your evidence. But again, because these are proprietary issues, this is a thing that is considered a trade secret and doesn't need to be disclosed. So basically, the PBMs hired this consulting company. Consulting company gave them an answer and said, these are all internal estimates. So I guess trust us which I'm sure works out great for the PBMs, but um, presenting this information for your consideration, um, I will say, obviously, I am not terribly trust trusting of it, particularly if you look at um, the PCMA Board of Directors. They highlight that they have, let's see, they have um, one physician, and one PharmD out of their eight-person board. However, the uh, um, the MD that's been on, on the chair has been basically a medical executive since 1997. I, I could not track down um, how much this uh, Dr. Alan Lotvin uh, was in practice before then, so maybe he has still at this point spent most of his career in practice. I certainly hope so, um, but it's difficult to say. You've uh, somebody who's been in uh, um, in an executive role for 20 years, um, how much of them, how much of that is actually still relevant to patient care? Um, another board member has a finance history, another finance history, uh, economics, masters in uh, healthcare administration, um, economics, business and labor relations. So we see that this company that is again. The advocacy group for the people who are making a lot of your uh, medication and procedure decisions is based in a 
finance mode, basically. Some clinical responsibility there, uh, but I'll leave you to decide how much of that is actually relevant. So we've kind of gotten to this position where um, even uh, as far back as uh, this article was from 2016 again, um, where these pharmacies are starting to buy more and more of these PBMs so that they have a better um, grasp on the market. Um, as a professor from the St. Louis College of Pharmacy described it, it's basically a sweetheart deal. You know, when you when you own somebody else, you don't really have to negotiate with them. One party can say to the other, this is what you're going to do. So there's not really any give and take. There's not negotiation or anything like that. Um, it's very difficult to negotiate any lower reimbursement or any higher rebates or anything like that from the um, PBM to the pharmacy side of things. It's really difficult to to make those better relationships. And at the same time, as these PBMs are the, the 600-pound gorilla, it's difficult for smaller independent retail pharmacies to, um, to keep up with that. You know, they're basically told, this is what you're going to do, or we're not, you're not going to be in our network anymore. So it, it's challenging because then that kind of feeds in on itself. You have these, the big keep getting bigger, the outside pressure to any, you know, any kind of pressure to keep costs down starts going away. This is most clearly evidenced by um, perhaps CVS, who bought a uh, PBM called Caremark in 2007. At the time, only about 12% of CVS's retail prescriptions came through Caremark. But strangely enough, over the next seven years, by 2014, 35% of CVS's revenue came from their own PBM. Is that growth in the market? Or does that represent some kind of perhaps flaw, bias, pipeline to a particular pharmacy? You be the judge there. And again, as these PBMs have gotten more power, they've been more exclusive to what they'll cover on the formulary. In 2012, again, to use CVS Caremark as an example, um, they had 30 drugs that they would absolutely not cover under any circumstance. Three years later, or four years later, excuse me, by the time this article was written, 2016, that number quadrupled to 124. From 30 to 124, because if you're not covering a medication, then you can go back and you can use those statistics like, well, we're passing the savings on. All of the savings that we generate through these rebates, those are going to the insurance companies. And yeah, I'm sure they are, but it's because you're not covering the drugs that you can't get a rebate on. It's no longer a competition. It's no longer clinical choice. It's no longer customer choice. It is you're going to buy this or you're not going to breathe. Or your diabetes is going to go so far out of control, um, you end up having retinopathy and, and going blind in one eye. Or um, vascular problems and having your foot amputated because the infection never heals. Um, or having chronic pain. That's another issue that we see. This was another. Um, this was actually written from the perspective of a physical therapist on a, a website called Kevin MD that does a great job of providing a lot of different perspectives. Um, this was, and again, this is a, a physical therapist, somebody who is well versed in the healthcare system, very health literate, having this issue with chronic pain. Um, from their uh, they this 
drug was prescribed by a rheumatologist, especially uh, specializing in, in arthritis and, and that kind of thing. Um, this drug costs $7,000 a month, which, yeah, that's expensive, but that's where we are in the market right now. And again, we can have that conversation about whether should a drug retail for that much from the manufacturer, that's a valid discussion to have. Um, but this particular drug costs $7,000 a month. It was in the Express Scripts formulary, but they opted to not cover it in this case because despite what the patient requested, the person paying for the insurance, paying, paying into the pot, despite what their clinician, their specialty clinician, who again has gone through medical school and uh, residency and fellowships and uh, I would imagine is well-versed in rheumatology, subject matter expert, felt this was the appropriate medication. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen this time. This medication went through uh, weeks, in this case, uh, over a month before um, this patient got a formal rejection. So again, a month in limbo, in this case of uh, pain, limited range of motion, because you know, this was a rheumatology issue, this was an arthritis issue, not even, uh, this was a, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, this was a thing that was, effect again, effective affecting quality of life in a major way over a month while somebody at a, an office somewhere is making a decision that had already been made by the, the people most directly associated with care. So, but and even after the physician followed all of the rules, did all the documentation, provided all the stuff, uh, this company Express Scripts decided to reject the medication because they hadn't gone through the fail first process. They hadn't tried something cheaper in this particular care episode. Uh, I don't know the whole story. I can tell you that there are many times where somebody has tried a drug five, six years ago, but because it's not in our current medical record, because we changed or they went to it, they moved, and you know, we don't have that part of the record. We don't have the, the signed document that says, yes, we tried this and failed it, and they won't take our word for it. Have to try it, fail it again. Have to repeat, have to go through the whole garbage stuff and, and do it again. So even after following all of the documentation requirements, all of the jumping through all the hoops, having all of the issues, Express Scripts still ended up rejecting this medication because they had to do the, the fail first process. They had to try the cheaper drugs first, even though, you know, again, everybody had known that this was not going to work. So this person was in unrelenting pain for a month and okay so now we've tried it now we're still not doing it it's not working and so then to, to kind of add rub salt in the wound so to speak express scripts calls this person and asks how this other drug this other this drug called humira that they had never been prescribed and nobody knew where that that reference had come from and this person ended up kind of losing their, their patience with, with the, uh, the prior authorization process. And understandably so. You know, again, these are issues that are common. They are prevalent. They are increasing. And they are a real concern because you know, these exclusion lists keep going up. The fees keep going up. The requirements keep going up. Um... And it's, again, not even just patients. And it's not just caregivers. It's not just the, the consumer side. It's the pharmacist, too. Um, 
there was a pharmacist in Florida that says um, there are a variety of, of fees that come into play when a PBM uh, is working with an independent pharmacist because, again, they want them to be part of their network or they want people to go to that network um, pharmacy. They often pay independent pharmacists lower reimbursement rates, according to this article. Um, and then again, it's, well, if you don't want to play by our rules, then you're not going to be on our list. And if you have a... a company or if you're if you have clients that have an insurance that uses this particular PBM then you're gonna lose access to those clients they kind of have the independent pharmacists over a barrel now all of that might even be justifiable you know maybe this is all good business practice but then we look at a most recent article from um, just a few weeks ago, or excuse me, from uh, from the end of last year, this was looking at the third quarter in uh, um, 2019, so that's why I thought uh, um, my quarters are off. I'm not a finance guy. I'm not a strictly finance guy. I'm learning, like I said, a little bit more about how healthcare finance works. But in the third quarter of 2019, United Healthcare actually reported a 2% decrease from uh, compared to the same quarter in 2018, the year-over-year decrease, in the number of prescriptions filled. But their OptumRx, Pharmacy Benefit Manager subsidiary, actually had revenue growth of 6% in that quarter. So they're, fueling, feel, they're filling fewer prescriptions, but they're making more money. How is that? How does that work? They're filling fewer prescriptions. They're, they're doing less of their task, but they're making a lot more money. They're serving 65 million people. They have 67,000 retail pharmacies, delivery pharmacies, specialty pharmacies, all that sort of thing. They made an extra billion dollars on fewer prescriptions because they're charging more ind per individual prescription whether it's because the drugs cost more, because they're, um, the list price is more, so the rebate is higher, so the copay is more. Um, it's difficult to say because, again, this is all proprietary. Um, when this particular uh, analysis says that it could be growth uh, attributed to growth in the specialty pharmacy care. But whatever it is, we're seeing that these revenue pressures are just continuing. And this makes uh, OptumRx in particular, they were expected to make about $75 billion. Just this one company that was originally there to save money is actually adding $75 billion to the healthcare system. And that's not going to go away because, as I mentioned, it's a subsidiary of United Healthcare Group. Um, and again, according to that analysis, contributes about 30% of United's overall uh, income. And so that's not going to go away lightly. What can we do about it? Should we do anything about it? My contention is yes. Hopefully after, after listening to this today, you'll feel much the same way because I think whether we are healthcare providers, whether we are advocates, whether we're people living with these conditions, I think we need to be addressing this issue because this is one of the main drivers of our costs in healthcare. And again, when you look at the dissociation of 
uh, preventative care costs like a uh, maintenance inhaler, controller inhaler, versus a the, the acute care costs. And, you know, if you have somebody who is not well controlled with their symptoms, whether it's asthma, COPD, cystic fibrosis, whatever, they're more likely to go into the hospital. They're more likely to have ER costs. They're more likely to have urgent care. They're more likely to miss school, miss work, all of these other factors to save a relative, relatively small amount of money. It's stepping over a dollar to pick up a dime. So it behooves all of us to be responsible stewards of resources and to start addressing some of these things. There are some groups out there that are already starting to look at at least bringing some rationalization to prior authorization. Here in Michigan, we have a group called Health Can't Wait, um, and we currently there's currently a bill um, still in committee right now, but uh, there's some optimism that it's going to at least get out of committee that says that uh, some reforms, some first step reforms that... Uh, Drugs, for example, have to be reviewed by somebody with experience in that specialty. You can't have a foot doctor, for example, reviewing inhaler drugs for appropriateness. Um, they have to, if you're denying a drug, you have to have a clinical reason for it. You can't just uh, say it's cheaper or whatever. And if, you, if you're a savvy clinician, then you can fight back against a lot of those things because most of us do tend to prescribe based on clinical judgment and evidence-based care and all those things. So, um, there are some things that are out there for that. Um, my advice to people listening, hopefully, if, if you're interested in getting involved, um, find those in your state. Some states have already passed these measures. Uh, some states like Michigan and Massachusetts have these measures pending. Um, there are still a few states where this hasn't been addressed, so I encourage anybody uh, with a political bent to uh, talk to your local um, state representative, state senator, whatever your your state uh, how or your state government is is called however it's set up start getting these things out there um, make sure that you are supporting your clinical team um, if you're a patient make sure that you're asking questions make sure you're sticking with this stuff and saying you know what can I do if you're a clinician make sure that you're advocating for your people make sure that you're sticking with those processes I know they're tough I know they're a huge source of moral injury out there because I again I deal with that every day um, make sure that you're we're fighting for these things make sure that when you have stakeholder meetings like we have for our state Medicaid program try to take some time to go to those try to bring a friend bring a clinical friend bring one of your patients personalize some of these things so that they aren't being decided in these back rooms anymore and again help spread the word about why these costs are the way they are it is very easy to oversimplify a lot of these things. It's kind of human nature to, to look for the bad guy. And it's really easy for the drug companies to be the bad guy. It's really easy for the insurance companies to be the bad guy. You know, we're the ones that are paying the money there. Um, we have a direct stake in, the, in those groups. It's a lot harder to detect some of these bad guys that work in the shadows a lot. And again, I'm sure a lot of the people that work for these companies are very nice. I'm not saying everybody who works for them is heartless. And again, they're, they're playing the game. The problem is we need to change the rules of the game. We need to bring more sanity to how we're prescribing things, whether it's procedures, devices, medications. We need to make sure that we're doing the most benefit for the patient um, with the most reasonable cost that is least intrusive on anybody's quality of life. And when we're making those decisions, when we're fighting for those things, that's what's going to start bringing costs down in healthcare and start bringing some sanity to our system.
All right. Well, again, I want to thank everybody for stopping into this inaugural uh, episode of the Potato Cast. Um, if you are um, interested in, in uh, what I have to say, hopefully you will share this share this uh, um, with your social networks. Uh, we're going to be in a lot of different podcast groups. We're already on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, those kind of places. Um, we're looking at a couple of different places to go. Uh, also, as I said, I have a couple of different topics in mind, but I'm uh, very excited to hear from, from you. Um, I'd really like to know what issues need more attention, what issues need explanation, um, how we can start moving forward again all together, uh, whether we're left or right, we're a clinician, we're a provider, we're a caregiver, we're a patient, whoever we are. Um, so that we can all be uh, uh, singing from the same choir book, I believe is, is the word. Um, maybe not, but uh, we all need to be on the same page. Whatever book we're reading from, we all need to be on the same page. We all need to be working together so that we can make these changes and uh, make sure that everybody is protected and everybody gets the care that they deserve. So with that, appreciate everybody stopping by again. Uh, my name is Mike Hess. This is the Potato Cast, America's number one healthcare podcast named after a cat. We will see you again uh, in, uh, in our next episode. Thanks.